Hello and welcome to Everyday Medicine. I'm Dr. Luke and I'd like to thank you for joining me in this podcast series where we share conversations with colleagues exploring their special interests in medicine and bringing insights, ideas and advice which I hope will be applicable for our medical practices. In this podcast, we have a conversation with Associate Professor Ernie Butler about Guillain-Barre syndrome and myasthenia gravis. Now, the Guillain-Barre syndrome is an acute inflammatory demyelinating polyradiculopathy. Although it's relatively rare, affecting just 0.4 to 2 per 100,000, it still is the most common cause of an acute flaccid neuromuscular paralysis worldwide. It famously affected Joseph Heller, author of Catch-22, and more recently, AFL football legend Alexander Clarkson. It's an immune-mediated disorder which affects the peripheral nervous system and is another example of molecular mimicry, often occurring one to six weeks after a respiratory infection or Campylobacter enterocolitis, or really after trauma or surgery. In one of the million cases, Guillain-Barre may develop after the influenza vaccine. It's noted that there is the development of ganglioside antibodies directed either at the nose of Ronvier, the anti-GD1A, or the neuromuscular junction, anti-GM1 or anti-GK18. Normally starting in the lower limbs, there is an ascending weakness and paralysis, as well as paresthesia. The weakness is both proximal and distal, and associated with areflexia and a reduction in proprioception and vibration sense. Autonomic dysfunction, including labile blood pressure, cardiac arrhythmias, and urinary retention may also occur. Ascending weakness may result in the very serious diaphragmatic paralysis and the need for ventilation in extreme cases. Rare variants include the Miller-Fisher syndrome, characterized by ophthalmoplegia, ataxia, and areflexia, and Bicostaph encephalitis. Treatment involves the avoidance of steroids, the avoidance, and the use of immunoglobulin and plasmapheresis, with up to 85% experiencing an excellent recovery. In 15 to 20% of cases, however, there is some residual morbidity, characterised by weakness and fatigue. Guillain-Barre, fortunately, is monophasic, that is, it's unlikely to return. To discuss myasthenia gravis, this is an autoimmune disorder most commonly observed in women under the age of 40 years and in men over the age of 60, where antibodies form against the nicotinic Acetylcholine receptor at the neuromuscular junction, that's seen in 85% of cases. Antibodies may also form against a muscle-specific tyrosine kinase, so-called MUSC7, 10% of cases, and low-density lipoprotein receptor-related protein 4, certainly is a mouthful, the LRP4, which is seen in 5% of cases. The MUSC7 and LRP4 are both important to the health of the neuromuscular junction. A myasthenia gravis results in weakness, worse with exercise, may involve the extraocular muscles, the facial muscles, and with bulbar involvement can cause, be associated with swelling issues and slurred speech. They also involve the upper and lower limbs causing muscular weakness. The condition is associated with thymoma in 10 to 20% of cases, and a myasthenic crisis may be precipitated by illness, pregnancy, trauma, and surgery, as well as many medications, including opiates, gentamicin, and succinamethonium. Treatments available include the use of steroids and acetylcholine esterase inhibitors such as pyridostigmine, thymectomy, plasmapheresis, and in more extreme cases, rituximab and other therapies. Now, to discuss these two interesting conditions, we're joined by Associate Professor Ernie Butler, who's the founder of Frankston Neurology Group and has a major clinical expertise in the management of both acute and chronic neurological conditions. Please join me in this conversation with Ernie. Uh, Dr. Ernie Butler, thank you very much for joining me again for another round of Everyday Medicine. 
to talk about neurology and I very much enjoyed the conversation we had about multiple sclerosis. I'd like to talk about two other disorders with you. Uh, again, these are autoimmune disorders, Guillain-Barre and myasthenia gravis. Um, would it be possible to start with Guillain-Barre? Could, could you discuss a little bit about this autoimmune demyelinating disorder? So it's demyelinating as MS is, but it's demyelinating of the the peripheral nervous system, not the central nervous system. Tell us a little bit about that. It's not super common, but every now and then I do have a patient that uh, has had Guillain-Barre and uh, Joseph Heller, uh, I know, who wrote uh, Catch-22, famously had um, Guillain-Barre as well. So uh, it it sort of comes to mind often I discuss that with friends. But take me through this condition. All right. Well, first of all, thank you very much again, Dr Luke, for asking me to to talk Uh, uh, I guess like in all branches of neurology, these are two very interesting conditions that we, we deal with. Uh, and look, a patient with Guillain-Barre syndrome, you, you'll almost only ever see these patients uh, in hospital because uh, they're, they're usually serious neurological presentations uh, and they most patients will present to the emergency department with a story that really only goes for you know, a few hours or sometimes two or three days. Now, it, it's an autoimmune condition which is considered to be post-infectious, and most patients will say they had, uh, you know, an upper respiratory tract infection a couple of weeks ago or, or sometimes it's due to Campylobacter jejuni uh, yes. mm-hmm. uh, diarrheal illness um, and leads on from that. Um, and, um, and, and the patients usually present sick, because they usually present to the emergency department unable to walk. And look, in any public hospital, there would be a few of these patients every year. Uh, so uh, I guess... The, uh, it's not a lot. It's not a lot. No, it's not a lot. But, but, but it's important that an emergency doctor or, or the general medical register or whoever, you know, sees this patient in the emergency department, you know, recognises that there's something serious going on and asks for uh, neurological help. Because uh, sometimes these sometimes it's misdiagnosed, uh, but generally speaking, um, when when the patient sees a neurology you know advanced trainee or or the neurologist in the emergency department, uh, we, we, it's usually pretty clear that they've got had a you know fairly rapidly progressive neurological story of you know reduced mobility, perhaps sensory symptoms, perhaps even pain. And, um, you know, if you send these patients home or it's not recognised that they have Guillain-Barre syndrome, they do run very, very serious risk. And, and mm. clearly the major risk is of dying from this, you know, life-threatening condition. How quick is the presentation? Will they, will they develop the paresthesias and that weakness within hours or, or is it over several days that they'll yeah, become unwell? Is it variable? It's a, quite a variable thing. I've seen patients present with only hours of symptoms. Now, on the same day to develop symptoms, uh, they're, they're in intensive care on a ventilator. I've seen that a few times. But most commonly they present with a story that goes back two, three, maybe four days at the most of, you know, uh, ascending paralysis in their yes. body, you know, starting in their legs and then starting to affect their arms. Um, that, that would be the more usual presentation, I think. It's a discussion that comes up sometimes with uh, respect to vaccination. But my reading is that the the likelihood of Contracting Guillain-Barre from, say, influenza vaccine is about one in a million. Is, it, is that a question that's often put to you? Uh, certainly with the COVID vaccines, you know, people have said, oh, well, that calls Guillain-Barre. My understanding is no. But uh, do you have a comment about that? Uh, 
Uh, you, look, you're right about what's quoted for the influenza vaccine. So uh, the, one of the only exemptions for influenza vaccine or medical exemptions would be as if you've had Guillain-Barre syndrome in the past. Yes. Uh, you're not meant to have the influenza vaccine. Uh, look, when it comes to the, uh, you know, the uh, coronavirus vaccines, um, there have been a number of reported cases that I'm aware of of Guillain-Barre syndrome from uh, COVID vaccination. Um, and uh, I think the most common association I'm aware of is with the AstraZeneca vaccine. Um, I, I had I looked after a patient uh, in October. Oh, sorry, that's right, just a few weeks ago uh, in Frankston Hospital, who had Guillain-Barre syndrome after receiving the AZ vaccine. And uh, the time and the time frame would make you think that that vaccine probably was etymologically significant, rather than just being a random event that could have happened. That's right. You, you can't exclude random events, but I think there is a register of this that's uh, in, in Australia. I don't know what the latest figures are, but there is a disproportionate number of people who have developed Guillain-Barre syndrome this year following um, AstraZeneca vaccination. And 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 the case I saw uh, in hospital was in the right time frame. Right. Okay. So it's hard, hard to dismiss it. Yeah, I've read that it's monophasic, so if you've had it, you're not supposed to it's not supposed to occur again. I'm not sure how true that is in medicine. There are never absolutes in medicine other. But is that is that your understanding, that if you've had it once, that's it, you're not going to get it again? Uh, look, that, that's correct. It is a monophasic illness. If it, if it comes back again, it means you've got, by definition, chronic relapsing demyelinating polyneuropathy or otherwise known as CIDP. A variant of it. So like a variant. Is that, so I was going to ask you then, if it doesn't come back, why why can't people have the the vaccine, like the, the, the flu vaccine, Given the paddock history of it, it's contraindicated to take the flu vaccine, but it's only—is it just a cautionary? It's just. I think well, it's just a cautionary. You make, you make a very good point. I think it's just a cautionary thing. Uh, I mean, you, you're right. It'd be like lightning striking twice, wouldn't it? Yeah. Um, okay. But I yeah. guess figured I want to take that on, and yes, you've got yeah. the potential legal legal issues. So it's a case of sort of molecular mimicry, isn't it, with Campylobacter jejuni and and maybe the influenza virus? There are antibodies that. Uh, reported with Guillain-Barre. Do we measure those antibodies, the anti-ganglicide antibodies? Uh, look, we, we generally don't. There's actually no clinical indication to do it because there's usually not much doubt about the diagnosis. Right. Um, right. But, uh, and if you measure those antibodies, anti-ganglicide antibodies, the majority of people with um, Guillain-Barre syndrome, in fact, won't be antibody positive. Uh-huh. Um, there is a variant of Guillain-Barre syndrome called uh, the Melifitia syndrome, Yes. where they have a particular anti-ganglicide antibody called the uh, anti-GQ1B antibody, which is specific for that disorder or that type of Guillain-Barre, that variant of Guillain-Barre syndrome. But generally speaking, anti-ganglicide antibodies are not helpful in um, diagnosis or treatment of this condition. So how do you, so if you've made the clinical diagnosis, um, they maybe have had, a, a, I guess, an enteric illness or a respiratory illness a short time before, is it like one to four weeks, that sort of time and before? That'd be That's right. Yeah, usually two or three weeks. Yeah. yeah. Well, you you go to meet that patient. What, what's your pro, what's your approach to management? Uh, well, I mean, the first thing, of course, is to is to make the diagnosis. Um, and uh, for an, usually it's a pretty, in my experience, a pretty straightforward diagnosis. Um, you know, the story of um, you know motor weakness much greater than sensory disturbance, generalized areflexia. Um, and, um, you know, left untreated, there's a risk that they'll go on to develop a bulbar palsy, in other words, trouble with swallowing and speech, right. uh, and a risk of ventilatory failure, um, you know, type 2 respiratory failure, 
um, and the risk of, you know, respiratory um, arrest and um, and deaths if uh, unrecognised and uh, untreated. Are so, the hands, uh, hands and arms affected as well? So I've always thought of it as being, you know, rising from the feet and up into the legs and so forth. But is it arms as well as the legs? Yeah, so it starts in the legs. Usually uh, the proximal muscles are affected just as much as the distal muscles in the legs. Sometimes the proximal muscles are affected more than the distal muscles. That's quite characteristic. Uh, and then uh, when it, you know, when it hit, hits the legs, uh, uh, I guess, to a moderate degree, then it rises into the upper limbs. The upper limbs are usually not affected as much as the lower limbs, but again, it's proximal and distal muscles usually equally affected, or the proximal muscles more, you know, weaker than the distal muscles. Um, patients lose the ability to walk, and they use and and you know, untreated, uh, you know, a lot of these patients become quadriplegic in a short period of time. Mm. Do you have to do any specific testing to clarify the diagnosis, or is that good history and clinical diagnosis? Uh, enough examination enough to to yeah. confirm it in the majority a good history and examination is enough yes um you can confirm the diagnosis with electrophysiological testing yes to, to confirm that there's actually demyelination in peripheral nerve fibers so what, what i mean by demyelination is that uh, there's a marked slowing in the conduction velocity of the peripheral nerves uh, and a neurophysiologist can test that um and uh, lumbar puncture can be helpful as well um, although if you do a lumbar puncture too early in a course of someone with Guillain-Barre syndrome, it can be normal. But what you're looking for is an elevation in the CSF protein with no cells. Mm. And that's, that's indicative of the underlying inflammatory process affecting the uh, nerve roots as they come off the spinal cord. Right. Um, okay. But that, that generally CSF proteins peak usually two or three weeks after the onset of the illness. So not particularly useful uh, diagnostically. Uh, as I said, mostly it's a clinical diagnosis. As soon as I make the clinical diagnosis, I start the patient on therapy, uh, which is with uh, intravenous immunoglobulin or plasma exchange. Um, and I, I say to the, the staff in the hospital, you've got to keep a very close eye on this patient, uh, particularly their forced vital capacity to check on the respiratory function uh, every, you know, um, and um, you know if they've de- if if their FBC is falling, or if they're developing a bulbar palsy, mm-hmm. um, or if they're becoming seriously weak, then they need an ICU uh, referral and possibly an ICU admission. Yes, yes, and ventilation is the next step. Uh, and and also what's also very important is of course DVT prophylaxis in these patients because they've and got a significant risk of thromboembolism. Okay, and steroids have no place, no role to play. I know it's an odd, odd autoimmune disorder, <laughs> and and this has been studied in the past, um, you know, with RCTs uh, as to whether steroids uh, are beneficial or detrimental in Guillain-Barre syndrome, and they've been shown to be detrimental. And for the life of me, I can't understand why. <laughs> um, yes, it's a rather unusual. It's an interesting point, isn't it? But it's an unusual yeah. observation. Yeah. Well, what's the outcome? So they've been in hospital, they've had maybe immunoglobulin, perhaps they've had to have some plasmapheresis. What, what sort of prognosis can we be advising the patients and their families? Yeah, look, I think if, I mean, as long as they've got demyelinating illness, not axonal variant of GBS, then the chances are they'll make a good recovery. Uh, the majority of patients will uh, be able to leave hosp- you know, the acute hospital and go to rehabilitation and eventually get home. Um, a small proportion of them will have ongoing mobility issues for life. Mm. But, a, but if you've got 
But if you've got less severe illness, then uh, the chances are you'll be able to walk and run again, so you'll be fine. So it's really, it's you know, essential to make the, the proper diagnosis and start early treatment so you can try and prevent, uh, you know, more disability in the long term and ICU admissions and the like. Um, now, if you've got the axonal variant of Guillain-Barre syndrome, uh, then that means the prognosis is not going to be as good. Mm-hmm. You're more likely to spend the rest of your days uh, not being able to walk or, or uh, in a wheelchair or, or possibly even die from the uh, condition. Does that variant reflect how quickly treatment has been initiated or not? It's no, I, I think it just depends on the antigen that uh, led to the autoimmune um, okay. disorder in the first place. And the patient's immune response to that. Yeah. That's right, yeah. yeah. Alistair Clarkson, it's the other name that comes to mind from Hawthorne. I think he had Gillian Barrett, didn't he, a couple of years ago? Uh, he did. He, had a, uh, he must have had a mild illness because he was back to coaching within, I think, three months, uh, yes. something like that. Um, and, you know, Joseph Hallery obviously recovered well. He wrote a book about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's true, he did. He did. Well, look, thank, thank you very much for taking me through that condition. What about myasthenia gravis? Can you tell us about this? Is another, it's not that common a condition either, is it? But it's another autoimmune condition that's very interesting. Look, um, you're right, it's not that common. I mean, as I said, I've, I have a lot of patients I see with MS, probably over a thousand. I've got about, you know, by comparison, 30 or 40 patients I see on a regular basis with myasthenia gravis. So it's a much less common condition. Yes. You're right. It's another autoimmune condition. It's a, in, in the class of um, um, conditions called neuromuscular conditions, but, of course, it is, it is entirely affecting the neuromuscular junction. Um, and, you know, the, the commonest type of gamma, uh, sorry, of myasthenia gravis is when patients develop antibodies, um, you know, acetylcholine receptor antibodies. So they develop antibodies to the... Uh, you know, the postsynaptic receptor of yes. acetylcholine. Yes. And they, it depletes a number of receptors and then they develop muscle weakness and fatigue. I think the last time I had a case, I didn't pick it, but it was a patient with dysphagia. So, you know, that I, I, didn't, uh, I didn't appreciate the, the yeah. gravity of the situation, but uh, that was a vulvar form of myasthenic gravis. Um, it, it does tend to affect the facial muscles, the swelling muscles, the eyes and so forth. In general, what, why is that, Ernie? What, why, why are we seeing in those muscles and not bigger muscles? Is it because of the the uh, the number of neuromuscular junctions that uh, the fine control of those muscles? What do we have a theory for that? No, I think you're right. I mean, I mean, the the most common presentation of myasthenia would be ocular myasthenia, yes. you know, with, with or without generalised disease. Yes. Generalised disease meaning outside the eyes, yes. um, and uh, I, I think it does. Um, reflect the, uh, you know, how much, well, I'm not entirely sure, but perhaps it's how much you use your eyes and how small those muscles are. Um, But, uh, yeah, I can't be sure about that one, unfortunately. How do they present to you? But but it does, does, I was going to say, it does affect larger muscles. I mean, um, it affects uh, proximal muscles in your arms and legs. Like uh, the common muscles affected would be your iliopsoas uh, muscles yes. in your legs. You know, so difficulty walking upstairs and getting out yeah. of a chair. Yes, or, or your deltoids um, in your arms. Um, but uh, and and you know that's right. You see, I guess potentially any voluntary muscle in the body can be affected. Um, but uh, it's generally uh, proximal arms and legs, um, bulbar musculature, facial muscles, um, neck flexors. And extensors and um, and ocular muscles and, and and your eyelids. 
when people are referred to you with these conditions, what's what's the sort of the common the GPs you know would say you please see patient X because of facial weakness or because of ptosis or what what would be the common presentation to you? Yeah, I've, yeah. The, the, I mean, you're right. The commonest presentation probably is ocular, and and it's either most commonly it's diplopia. Okay. You know, yeah. seeing double or yeah. or um, autosis. Yeah. So work out this patient with the with diplopia. It's one of the yeah, things we or, need to consider. Yes, that's right. Or, or both, and um, or, or and and the patients with bulba presentations of myasthenia generally end up in the emergency department. Yes, yeah. because so that tends to come on a bit faster, um, yeah. and causes more disability, of course. Yes. Does, so when you're faced with this clinical condition again, you're suspecting it from the uh, from your history and the examination. Are you going then to measure the uh, the ACH antibody, receptor antibodies, is that what you would do to confirm the diagnosis? That's right. I mean, there are a number of diagnostic tests. I mean, again, comes down to good clinical history and examination and the history, the patients often give you a history of fatigue. Mm. Now, they get fatigable weakness as the day wears on. But in terms of uh, tests, uh, blood tests, we would, uh, most patients, acetylcholine receptor antibody positive, uh, and if you're seronegative for that, then a small proportion of patients will be anti-musk antibody positive, yes. muscle-specific kinase. And some people are uh, seronegative for both, uh, and you can use other ancillary tests to make the diagnosis. Uh, one, one good bedside test to do is called the ICE test. Um, and if someone who has ptosis um, and you can't see whether there's obvious fatigue or not, then, then what you do is you just apply some ice to their eyelid or to both eyelids, uh, for two minutes. It's a very uncomfortable procedure. Uh, and then you take the ice off and presto, their ptosis is gone. That's confirmatory of myasthenia gravis, an easy bedside test to do. Oh, I haven't heard that one. Okay. The, the, the ice test. The, the uh, ice test. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little bit painful. Um, How's that working physiologically? Is it, is it uh, speeding up exone or, well, it's not the exone. Is it, is it, how's it working? So I, I think it's just resting the neuromuscular junction. You know, it's it's cooling the temperature of the neuromuscular junction okay. directly. It won't fix, fix diplopia, it'll only fix dosis, but it, it cools the neuromuscular junction. Uh, I think it has gives it time for it to um, to regroup, so to speak. Yes. And um, and and then it works it works normally for well uh, uh, seconds to minutes afterwards. Right. And the, the other physiological test you can do is uh, the old-fashioned tensilon test. Yes. Is that that's still done? It's not done very often these days because mm. the small risk that it can cause um, heart block or, uh, you right. know, an, an arrhythmia. Yes. So w- when it's done, it's usually uh, given um, to a patient who's being monitored uh, in a hospital. Uh, you've got to have some atropin ready um, mm. because, it you know, it's, it causes a bradycardia. And um, you, you give the um, the um, tensile on, and um, you know usually with, within seconds, all of their neurological signs have gone. And look, I've used that many times in my career. It's not so readily available in pharmacies these days in hospitals, but um, it's another uh, confirmatory test for this condition. Uh, and uh, look, the other tests that we tend to do to confirm the diagnosis, particularly if someone's seronegative, would be neurophysiological testing. Okay. So we, we can test the fidelity of the neuromuscular junction directly by things like um, repetitive nerve stimulation, mm. you know, either of a facial muscle or of a or of a, a limb muscle. 
um, particularly proximal muscles, uh, or we can do what's called single fiber um, testing, where you know a, a you know a skilled neurophysiologist is able to um, uh, pick up um, the, uh, the the muscle units and see if there's any so what's called jitteral block at the neuromuscular junction, showing that there's um, this problem with neuromuscular transmission. My son's doing medicine, and he's mentioned this LRP4 antibody, which is very probably very unusual. Is that something that we measure as well? We've talked; it's not the common one. We don't. I've never seen it. I've no. sorry, certainly heard about it, but I've never seen. We it. We don't measure it, not in clinical practice. There's a relationship between Marcini gravis and thymoma. Do we understand why that is? I mean, well, I guess, first of all, your, your thymus is clearly an important part of your um, immune system, yeah. particularly early on in life to produce T, T lymphocytes. But um, uh, I, I don't think we're entirely sure why there's a connection between the two, apart, apart from that, uh, except as, and, and I'll go on and say that uh, patients who have myasthenia gravis, we routinely uh, order a high-resolution CT of their chest to check for a thymoma yes. because um, uh, if you have a thymoma, there's, first of all, an increased risk of developing myasthenia, and conversely, if you have myasthenia, there's an increased risk that you've got an underlying thymoma um, and uh, it needs to be taken out. It's usually a benign tumour, but occasionally it's invasive and malignant um, and potentially life-threatening, mm. um, and, and I've seen that happen in one of my patients. Ernie, I've got uh, the Royal Australian College of Physicians journal in front of me from 2019. You're in here. Marcia Gravis, uh, reviewing treatments. Thank you very much. <laughs> I've read that before this discussion today. But, but I think you're reviewing in there the sort of treatments that have been given for Marcia Gravis um, in, in Victoria. You talk about rituximab, or the, the, the article talks about rituximab and plasmapheresis. How often are you having to use these sorts of therapies in Marcia Gravis? These are for bulbar presentations and much more severe forms of myasthenia gravis, are they? So rituximab we would use very little of. Yes. Um, it's generally considered to be the most effective therapy for musk-positive uh, antibody myasthenia patients. Right. But not, not so much. It's a variable effectiveness, I think, and there's less evidence for people with um, acetylcholine receptor antibody-positive myasthenia. Um, uh, and plasma exchange, we, we we actually don't use very much for myasthenia. If, we, if we're going to use a therapy like that, we tend to use intravenous immunoglobulin. Right. Uh, and, and there are some patients who need to be on that on, on a regular basis. But yes. the important thing, I think, to point out about IVIG therapy in myasthenia, it will not bring about a remission. And, and what you're aiming for in these patients is not just to relieve their symptoms, but to put them into long-term remission or possibly even cure them from this condition, and that, that's certainly possible. Right, okay. Otherwise, the treatment is the anticholesterol inhibitors. Um, there's the Marcinia crisis, which, you know, they just sometimes sort of get excited about this with, if we're doing an endoscopy on someone who's got Marcinia gravis. Is that something that we need to be concerned about clinically? Uh, so a patient with myasthenia, so I should just, for the people listening to this podcast, myasthenia crisis means that someone has very severe myasthenia affecting the respiratory muscles. They go into respiratory failure and are at risk of for respiratory arrest. And these patients uh, always end up in, in, in an ICU on a ventilator because other, otherwise they're surely going to die. And um, 
uh, I, I don't tend to see many patients with myasthenic crisis. It has, has to have been, you know, uh, not recognised for a long time, usually to get to that state. Mm. Um, when, when I have a patient in hospital uh, with myasthenia, we, uh, again, like Guillain-Barre syndrome, we, we keep a close eye on their force vital capacity yes. um, just to make sure they're not going into ventilatory failure. We might do, you know, check their arterial blood gases and the like, but, you know, a good FVC at the bedside in a neurology ward is usually all that's necessary to monitor these patients. Yes. But, uh, look, for the procedures you're referring to, um, the risk of uh, causing a myosinia crisis in a myosinia patient um, uh, would would be, I think you'd be, uh, it'd be a rare thing. Be very rare, yes. Very rare. This, yeah. is, more, this is more for examination mode, isn't it, for writing up exams and thinking about just like the, the the physician exams, you might have to know about myasthenia. You'd have to have someone. I think someone hospitalised with severe myasthenia, who, who I guess you gave um, uh, a sedative to, uh, I guess would run the risk of myasthenia crisis. Or there are certain drugs that are, uh, put a person at an increased risk of having an exacerbation of their myasthenia. But myasthenia crisis is not that common. You know, having said that, there was a patient recently um, uh, in one of the hospitals I attend who died with from a myasthenic crisis as a consequence of COVID infection. Oh, okay. So that's it's like an, an intercurrent illness or certain medications. Oh, someone, that, so these, are, these are things that can precipitate it, yes. That, that's right. Viral infection certainly can precipitate a, you know, a severe myasthenic exacerbation or even crisis. And you can't just increase the anticholinesterase medication dose to control that. Uh, no, if you give too much um, anticholinesterases, that can actually cause a cholinesterase cholinergic crisis, yes. which can mimic a, a myasthenic crisis. That's a fun so you've, got, you've, you've got to get the balance right. Now, look, the, the standard treatment for myasthenia, the, you know, the gold standard treatment when someone's diagnosed and presents to a hospital uh, and, and what will put them into long-term remission is corticosteroids. Right. Um, so okay. uh, if someone's got severe myasthenia, we often have to bump up their dose of corticosteroids. Right. We're okay. talking high-dose prednisolone usually for a long period of time. Uh, with some sort of steroid sparing agent like azathioprine or mycophenolate mofetil. Yes, okay, to, to give control. Yeah, because you won't get control with uh, with anticholinesterases in the long term. Ernie, give me a sense of uh, a young doctor perhaps wanting to do neurology. What, what would you say to them as a as a you know career? <laughs> It's a career choice. Like you're very, you're very, you know, passionate about it, and very, <laughs> you know, uh, excited about the uh, the neurology. T tell us about. So, what would you say to a young doctor who maybe thinking about a career in neurology? So, Doctor Luke, you want me to say this is an unbiased? I'm going to come down to your unit in Frankston. If you want good young doctors to come down there and work for you. Uh, I, I, I'd say anyone who uh, decides to go into neurology, you, you will have a fascinating career. You know, the, the, the patients are, um, you, know, they're, you know, they can give you good stories about their problems from which you can make a diagnosis, and they're, you know, generally a good bunch of people. Um, you know, you work with good doctors in the hospital as well as outside the hospital, and and. You know, neurology always has interesting things it throws up. Uh, I guess let's say I see 100 patients uh, in my practice or outpatients or wherever or in hospital, and, you know, 95% of the time I can make the diagnosis based on my experience and knowledge base. But there might be 5% of cases where I think I've really got to think about what their problem is and how am I going to, uh, you know, arrive at a diagnosis? How am I going to manage that patient? Uh, 
there are always always challenges in neurology that are unexpected, and uh, I, I love the challenge. You know, I, I like the detective work that you have to do sometimes yes. to make a neuro, uh, you know, make a neurological diagnosis. Yes, it's, it's um, what it's what makes clinical medicine very interesting, isn't it, and exciting? Yeah, I, I, look, I love it, and uh, as I think I said before, it's what gets me out of bed in the morning. Um, I, you know, I've been a neurologist since 1988, and I still love being a neurologist. Bertie, thank you so much for your passion, for your expertise again, and joining me today. I really appreciate it so much. Thank you. Thank you very much, Bernie. Thank you, Luke. Thank you. Thank you again for joining me in this conversation with Associate Professor Oni Butler, who deftly guided us through these two fascinating conditions, Guillain-Barre syndrome and myasthenia gravis. I do hope you found the conversation as interesting and helpful as I did. Uh, during the podcast series, we will be covering a wide range of topics across many special interests. The discussions are not intended as specific medical advice for patients, but as general information only and reflect the opinions of the guests interviewed. Requests for new topics to be reviewed and comments about the conversation you've listened to are welcomed and maybe email to manager at joehealth.com.au.